Welcome to the Gather Houston podcast. We are a Christian community practicing the way of Jesus in all parts of life and for the good of all people. Thank you for joining us today. Well, you might know already, but 2023 is our year with Jesus. We are focusing solely on the life and the teachings and the way of Jesus. And uh, we're hoping that as we spend time with Jesus, we can learn about Jesus and hopefully in some ways become more like Jesus, embody this way of being in our world. And um, really what we're trying to do is just push away some of the other kind of cultural uh, Christian things that we've been taught or that we've internalized or we've assumed about Jesus and, and kind of press pause on an American version of Christianity or even uh, a sometimes biblical but not Christian version of Christianity, and just focus on Jesus. What does Jesus have to say? And in this Easter season, the uh, season celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, I'm hoping that we can learn from the resurrected Jesus. Right? Jesus does and says some really interesting and compelling things after he's resurrected, right? In the days just following being raised from the dead, Jesus has some stuff to say. And today, uh, we're going to look at a, at a pretty well-known passage, a popular passage. Uh, but before we read it, I just want to prep us all a little bit, okay? Uh, a lot of us have had adverse religious experiences, which may be an understatement, right? A, a lot of us have had adverse r- religious experiences, and um, I get it. That includes me. And there are some passages in the Bible that have been um, weaponized and manipulated, And I think what a lot of us have done, myself included, is that we have understandably, as a response to being hurt uh, by these texts, we've just decided we should ignore them altogether. And and, um, that makes sense, right? But but I I think it's been easy to kind of create a false binary uh, that says those are only two options. We can either be hurt by this text or we can just ignore it. And so I'm hoping that we can have kind of a third way today. This is a popular passage of the Bible we're going to read. It has been largely manipulated and weaponized uh, on our behalf and and against us in some ways. And so I'm hoping we can have a third, we can uh, kind of create and forge a third way today that we can rehear and reimagine this passage. Right. So I'm hoping that, that we can reimagine a more expansive and loving understanding of this teaching that has harmed us and others. Does that sound good? That we'll reimagine a more expansive and loving understanding of this teaching. So today, with that in mind, with a little bit of prep, we're going to look at the Great Commission. That's what it's been titled for us, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We'll read it, and then we'll do some reimagining together. So it says in Matthew 28, starting in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely... I am with you always to the very end of the age. You're probably familiar with it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Maybe you had a t-shirt 
with that verse written on the back at some point. This was the evangelism passage in my life. And I have done some evangelism, y'all. I have stood on street corners and done gospel presentations to people who were not interested at all. And after they were not interested and they were rude, I counted that as a persecution of my righteousness and gave myself a pat on the back. I've done evangelism. And in my formative years, this passage from Matthew 28 was used largely to guilt me into guilting other people. It's just one of those passages in the Bible. There are others, but it's just one of those passages in the Bible that is easy to manipulate. And I'm hoping today that we can just call it what it is that we can name how it's been used, right? The Great Commission has been used to encourage abusive leadership, colonization, coerced conversion, and indoctrination. Let's call it like it is. That's the truth of it, that this passage, beautiful, important, from Jesus, it's been used to encourage abusive leadership, colonization, coerced conversion, and indoctrination. And those are bad. Those are bad. Those are bad things. We don't have to pretend. Those are bad. And that's why it's easy for us just to avoid passages like this. We just say, well, we don't want to be colonizers. We don't want to indoctrinate or coerce people into this way of being. Let's just, let's just not go there. But I, I'm hoping that we can walk through the passage today and, one, be honest about how it's been used. Let's name it. Let's call it out, how this passage has been used. And then together, let's reimagine a more expansive and loving understanding. Right, so right, right at the beginning here, Jesus says, famous phrase, go and make disciples. And for some reason, church folks have decided uh, that, that what this means is that we get to have a secret knowledge that other people don't have, and that we should impart our secret special knowledge and information on other people, whether they like it or not. That, that's what uh, make disciples has been turned into that we already have the special info and we want to give it to other people. And, and we've assumed this role as an abusive leader who can lord over those who are not yet wise like we are. Right? The, the lost, we're found because we have the special information, the, the special knowledge that other people don't have. And we lord it over and victimize those who don't yet have it. So let's reimagine it. this. So for, first of all, what I'm hoping we can do first, let's just lose the word disciple. I know it's in there. It's important. But let's just lose it because we've assigned all kinds of things to it that aren't there. Uh, there's lots of ways to translate this word from the original language. Um, some people like words like pupil. Right? These are pupils of Jesus or, or apprentices. And I, I think those are fine. But I just want to keep it simple today. Um, the easiest way to translate it is just a student. These are students. These are learners. And, and um, the group of people that Jesus is instructing in this passage to go and make disciples are themselves disciples. That, that's how start, this whole passage starts in verse 16. The disciples are there. The students are there. And Jesus says, go and see if there are some other students. And what Jesus isn't saying is uh, become the rabbi. Become the teacher, become the leader, become the guru, become the gatekeeper, and get your own students. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you are students. You, I'm looking at you. You're the students. You are the learners. 
Invite other people to learn alongside you, not under you, with you. Right? This isn't supposed to be about some group of people having the special knowledge, gate, becoming gatekeepers of that knowledge, lording it over other people and victimizing them with it. Everyone in this passage is in the same posture and position as a student, a learner, following Jesus. That's it. Everyone is in the same place. No one gets to hold the information over anybody else. There are no gatekeepers, no gurus here, just learners. And then Jesus says that, uh, that inviting students, disciples, should happen with all nations, all nations. And those two words have been used as a defense of violent colonization around the world, all nations. We're supposed to go to the nations. And I've done it. I've traveled to faraway places with people who had different cultures and different beliefs and different practices than I. And I've told them that they were wrong and that they should be more like me. And being more like me wasn't just being a Christian. It was also about assimilating to an American version of Christianity and more specifically a white American version of Christianity. It's colonization, and it's wrong. But when Jesus first speaks these words, invite learners of all nations, it's not a directive for colonization or colonialism. It's a grand gesture of inclusion. This is inclusion. This is about inclusion. Anyone can be a learner. Anyone can be a student of the way of Jesus. Anyone from any tribe, from any nation, from any language, from any creed, from any gender, from any sexuality, anyone, all nations, all people can be learners of the way. It's a beautiful statement of inclusion, not colonization. And it's especially inclusive because Jesus is speaking to a group of people who were particularly exclusive. The Jewish uh, religious system was particularly insulated. It was, it was very exclusive. And so when Jesus says, invite people to be students of me that are from all nations, right? it's not a directive to impart a culture onto other people. It's a reminder that the way of Jesus includes everyone. And Jesus says that when we invite students of all people we should baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They should get baptized. And we, we primarily associate baptism with conversion, which I understand. You, you convert, you, you get converted, and then you get baptized. And so we, we've said, um, you know, the church, especially in America, have said, well, we've got to get people to make decisions, to make decisions for Jesus, and then get baptized. Right, we're, we're counting decisions. How many decisions? But for Jesus, baptism was not about conversion. And one of the ways we can be sure about this, that baptism was not about conversion for Jesus, is that Jesus himself was baptized. And like we, we don't think Jesus needed to be converted to become a follower of himself. It wasn't about converting to a new religion. Baptism isn't primarily about conversion Baptism existed before Christianity. This isn't a new thing. You'll see here, when Jesus says, go baptize, he doesn't give like a long explanation of what that means because they were already doing it. 
Baptism uh, was an act of uh, ritual cleansing before temple worship. And observant Jews did it over and over and over again as an act of ritual cleansing. But in this new way of Jesus, what's new and different about it is that you don't have to do it over and over and over again. You just do it once. You get baptized once, what Paul says. One baptism. As a reminder that the love of God is permanent, never-changing, and unconditional. Right? You, you get baptized not as a symbol of a, your own conversion, but as an acceptance of the unconditional, never-ending love of God. Baptism is publicly and symbolically accepting your unchanging acceptance. It's why God speaks over Jesus when he's baptized. This is my son whom I am well pleased. Right? Baptism reminds us that God calls all of us his own. And reminds all of us that God is well pleased with us. There's no coercive tactics necessary. We don't need to manipulate people into making decisions. We just need to remind people that they're already accepted. And that acceptance of divine love, it's unchanging. It's never ending. It's unconditional. The goal of baptism isn't to threaten people with hell until they make a decision. It's accepting that you are already accepted. No coercion, just unconditional acceptance. And then on the other side of all that inviting everyone and sharing the unconditional acceptance of God, Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I know what you're thinking. You just told us they weren't supposed to be teachers. Everyone's a student. Everyone's in the same posture, the same position. And the church has primarily liked the teach them to obey part of this. We go, oh, yes. Let's teach them to obey. We like this. But we've missed the everything I have commanded you. Right? We like to be the teachers. We like a power position. We like to be the gurus and the gatekeepers of the special information. But Jesus is saying here, if you just simplify this, Jesus is just saying, hey, tell people what I told you. Tell people what I told you. Be a learner. Invite everyone in. Remind them of the unconditional acceptance of God and, and tell them what I told you. Tell them that really important command. And Jesus commanded. It's super simple. He said, a new command I give to you. Love one another. That's what we're supposed to be passing along. Love, not dogma, not purity, not rules, not indoctrination, just love. Tell people what I told you. That's what Jesus is saying. Tell people what I told you. I told you to love one another. That's it. When, when we, we focus on teach them to obey everything, and we go, oh man, we got to add some everything. We got to really fill out this everything. Jesus says, I have a new command for you. Love one another. That's it. And all of this is capped with Jesus saying, and I will be with you until the end of the age. I'll be with you for all of it. And so here's how I believe this great commission can be summarized, can be reimagined with us. Three words. Participate with love. Participate. Go and invite folks to be learners of the way of love. Remember that everyone, everyone is included in this love. And remind everyone of their unconditional, unchanging love and acceptance. And then, after you've reminded them of their acceptance, divine acceptance, share with them the big command to love one another. Participate in divine love, with love, for the sake of loving 
one another. We don't have to ignore this passage. We get to participate in the story, not as a colonizer or a gatekeeper, but as someone who is participating with love. What a gift. No guilt, no condemnation, no indoctrination, no coercion, no manipulation, just love. Participate with love for the sake of loving one another. Just participate. There was a, a story on This American Life a few years ago uh, about a dad with a nine-year-old daughter who just couldn't stop asking questions. Maybe you've had this experience with your kids. Questions about everything over and over and over again. So this dad, a uh, good dad, said, well, why don't you write down all your questions for me? And so this nine-year-old girl did. And uh, the first question she asked was, what is life and why? Right? She's asking big questions for a nine-year-old. Uh, she asked, time, why, explain. That's my favorite one. She asked, uh, why is there heaven and hell? She asked, who do you miss and why? And do you miss anyone more than them? And does that change and how? And if that changes, was it worth missing them in the first place? It's a big question. And in total, she wrote down 50 questions for her dad to answer. And so this dad spent three years researching and answer these, answering these questions one by one, like writing really serious responses, like research paper responses, and giving them to his daughter. And it took him a really long time. And so three years, three years into this process of this dad researching and writing and researching and writing, a, a reporter from NPR, from This American Life, came to talk to this dad and this now 12-year-old girl named Rosie about these questions she asked and about this process her dad was in. And so they ask uh, this girl, Rosie, about this and how it's been for her. And this is what she said about her dad spending three years to research and write all of these answers. Ro Rosie said, the answers weren't really what I wanted. I was lonely and I felt a little sad that nobody had stepped out to say, I'll be your friend. So I asked questions that I thought would take my dad a long time to answer because I really just wanted to talk to him. That was the whole thing. She didn't want the answers. She just wanted to be together. She didn't need or want or care about the right information. She just wanted participation. And um, we have turned this passage in Matthew 28, one we all know, and so many others like it, into a pursuit of getting the right information, agreeing intellectually with that right information, sharing that right information, lording that right information over others, weaponizing it, manipulating it, so that we get to be special, we get to be the gatekeeper, we get to be the guru, because we have all the information. We want to be the experts with the research. And all Jesus is asking is that we would participate. And for the record, the world doesn't care about your research. They just want your love. Jesus says, participate in my story of love. Be with me in this story of love. Love one another. Accept your own belovedness. Share love. The whole thing here in Matthew 28 is about us participating in divine love. Tell them what I told you. The whole thing is about loving one another. Accept your belovedness in this act of baptism. Be a learner of the way of love. The whole thing is about participating with love. 
It's not about having the right information. It's not about being able to provide a defense with the correct information. It's just about participation. Participate in divine love with love for the sake of loving others. Just participate with love. So for you, how have you used this passage, this great commission? Or, or, or maybe an, another way to think about it would be, um, how has this passage been used against you? Maybe like, like me, it was, um, this passage was about guilting you into guilting others. Maybe you've thought about this passage primarily about conversion. Right? We've got to get people converted. We've got to get decisions. We've got to get them indoctrinated, even if you wouldn't use the word indoctrination, I understand. And maybe there's a way for you that it could be about love. And I wonder if your religious experience has been more about information or participation. Do you feel like you have to have the special knowledge? We like to have the right answers, don't we? And I wonder if you feel like you have to have that special knowledge. And then, then you're especially responsible because you have the right information with sharing that special knowledge with those who have the wrong information. Right? Has your religious experience primarily been about information or about participation? And what would participating with love look like for you this week? What would that look like for you, to participate with love? And maybe you need to accept your own acceptance first. Maybe you've been baptized, and maybe that was an act of intellectual conversion, that you agreed intellectually with a set of principles. And maybe you've done that, but you haven't accepted your unconditional acceptance. So you say, no matter what, in no way does this ever change. From eternity to eternity, I am accepted and loved by God. And then if you feel like you have, you say, you know, I, I have accepted my identity as a child of God, loved by God, nothing I can do about it, accepted and loved. Maybe just offer that to someone else. Offer a little unconditional, never-changing love and acceptance. Maybe that's how you could participate with love. Right? You don't have to have the right answer. You don't, have to, you don't have to give a defense of anything. You don't have to worry about teaching people to obey. Just share unconditional love and acceptance. Participate with love. We, we don't have to ignore this hard passage. We get to participate, not as a colonizer or a gatekeeper or a guru, but as someone who is participating with love. No guilt, no condemnation, no indoctrination, no coercion, no manipulation, just love. Participate with love. You know, for a lot of my life, I felt a heavy weight for the lostness of the world. And I felt like it was my responsibility to save the world from eternal damnation. I felt an anxiety, a heaviness about my responsibility to save the world. And it gave me a ton of anxiety. And I, I was taught to see the downtown skyline with all of its towering buildings full of people. And I was taught to think about all those people who were lost and going to hell. When I saw faces 
in a large crowd, I wondered if they were aware of their sinfulness and their eternal destination. I was guilted into guilting. And now, when I see those same faces in a crowd, or I get a good view of our downtown skyline, I do not feel the weight of our world's sinfulness. Now, I feel the joy of our world's belovedness. I, I, I do not, even as a pastor, as a religious leader, I do not feel responsible for anyone's eternal destination. But I do wonder if these folks I see in our world know about their current worthiness. This world is transparent with the love of God. It is shining through the eyes of every image bearer. It's speaking through the mouths of our wild and beautiful children. It's on display in human diversity. Our world isn't lost in need of those who will speak salvation. Our world is beloved, and it is in need of those who will offer open-hearted, unconditional, divine love and acceptance. We are participants in God's story of love. What a gift. No guilt, no coercion, no indoctrination, no manipulation. We simply get to participate with love. And so gather, this is my prayer for us today. Release yourself from any and all religious guilt. The world is not yours to save. Serve the world with the unconditional love of God. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in Gather, check out our website at gatherhouston.org or visit us on Sunday at 10 a.m.